Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Hermann Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Welcome to the PMNR Report. Today we have Dr. Sultan, who is a clinical assistant professor at McGovern Medical School. She received her medical degree from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City in 2014, and then completed her residency in the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas in 2018. Dr. Sultan joined the faculty of McGovern Medical School at UT Health in December of 2018. Her passion lies in the field of pelvic floor muscle dysfunction and women's health rehabilitation, and she is now treating these patients in a dedicated UT Physicians outpatient practice. Dr. Sultan, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I really appreciate you coming to speak to us about pelvic rehabilitation. Um, I think in the both in the world, the United States, and especially you know within physiatry, it's a topic that not a lot of people talk about, and um, patients who are affected by either like women's health issues or pelvic floor dysfunction really fall through the cracks and they have a lot of, a lot of trouble finding the right practice to, you know, get their problems heard and um, to get solutions. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to, to talk with you. So I figured we could start by just getting to know you a little bit better. Um, If I could, just get you to give us a short introduction and maybe something others, a detail that others might not know about you. Sure. So um, my name is Mariam Sultan. Um, I was born and raised in New York City and I moved um, to Houston for my residency training um, after medical school also in New York Um, and then kind of have settled here um, since then, um, and, um, uh, and, um, faculty at UT Houston and just recently started this, um, pelvic floor dysfunction clinic. Um, and then I guess my fun fact that not many people know about me is that my first language is actually French. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, how- <laughs> Just, I just, I have to know now, how, how did that happen? <laughs> so, um, so my mother is French, um, like, you know, originally from like, you know, raised in France and everything immigrated here. My father is actually Egyptian, also immigrated here. Um, and uh, during kind of, I guess, my really young years, uh, my father was working a lot. 
um, and also studying. And so I didn't spend very much time with him, but my mom, you know, was home with me and she just naturally spoke to me in French. And so that's what I grew up speaking. But then once I started kindergarten, um, I had an accent when I spoke English. And so my teacher told my mom to stop speaking to me in French. And so um, I lost the accent, but uh, I luckily kept the language. That's, that's really cool. Um, that's amazing. Um, it's, uh, do you, do you keep up with the French? I'm just curious now. Um, not as much as I'd like to, I took it all through school. Um, but, uh, the only time I use it now is when I talk to my French family, which is not very often, unfortunately. I think it's a similar story to a lot of people who may have, may have, uh, had a language other than English as their first language. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's, it really does take a lot of dedication and work to keep up with, um, yeah. to keep up with multiple languages. Yeah, All absolutely. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I guess we'll get right into it. Um, can you kind of define what pelvic pain is, uh, so that other people might know when to refer to a pelvic pain or pelvic dysfunction specialist? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I like to think of it geographically, or I guess anatomically as pain, any pain that localizes between the umbilicus and under the hips um, or under the groin area. Um, and some, you know, above the knee, um, I would consider pelvic pain. So that can be anything anterior, even lower abdominal, um, definitely, you know, perineal, but also buttock, um, and sometimes even hip, um, you know, kind of involving the hip or radiating to the hip. So anything in that area of the body. I can see how already, how this could really appeal to physiatrists because there's a lot of anatomic considerations when you have pain in this area, you know, like you have the, the lumbar spine, the, the sacrum, the coccyx, the, the SI joint, um, and then the actual pelvis itself, but then all of this other stuff that's on all the other like organs, the ligaments, the, uh, the connective tissues, blood vessels, nerves, all these different things that are going in uh, to a very narrow space. Um, mm -hmm. And then all the other like musculoskeletal con uh, considerations from other disciplines like uh, pain, uh, interventional pain and sports medicine. Um, uh, that, that's awesome. Uh, yeah. so could you, so say if a, if a patient comes in with, um, with pelvic pain, what are some, like, I guess, special questions, uh, that a, that some, like a resident like me who would, would want to ask them? Yeah. So definitely the typical questions that we, that we, um, that we ask about any pain. So um, location, quality, when did it start? Um, what makes it worse? What makes it better? So those kind of standard questions, but then I guess when it comes to pelvic pain, we do have um, other factors that, that can help to narrow down the diagnosis for us and then also kind of paint a more complete picture. Um, uh, you know, questions like, does a full bladder make the pain worse? Um, or is the pain worse with defecation? Um, asking about sexual intercourse and if, and if that affects the pain or, you know, brings it on or even what stages of intercourse make it worse. Um, um, 
the, the typical ideas of, of uh, I guess, spine related pain in terms of sitting, um, you know, bending forward, extending back, how does that, how does that impact it? Um, definitely kind of having a really good idea of what sitting does to the pain is important. Does the pain wake them up at night? That's important in, in, in eliminating definitely scary diagnoses, but also um, just general pelvic pain diagnoses like pudendal neuralgia, um, which typically should not, you know, wake somebody up at night. Um, so I, so thinking kind of about the different organ systems that are, that are within the pelvis helps to, helps to make us realize which questions we also need to ask. So also, you know, asking about stool quality when we think about constipation versus diarrhea and how that could affect congestion in a very narrow area. Um, so the, it sounds like, um, similar to a physiatry evaluation, you're really trying to get down to um, a lot of functional questions mm -hmm. in relation to the organ systems that are passing through those areas? It's, it's really interesting because there, it's not uncommon that a patient will come in with one, with one uh, complaint related to their pelvic area, um, but then also uh, kind of just re reveal during the exam usually that that there's kind of more going on. So for instance, I saw um, a patient actually with you, you know, who came in with um, just for assessment of urinary incontinence. And then during the exam, it was kind of grossly obvious that she had significant, you know, pelvic pain and guarding. Um, and so thinking about the interconnection definitely between all these organ systems and how they affect one another is really integral. Yeah, I remember that case very specifically because um, it was a it was it was one of the cases where they came in and you're a consultant and they have a specific question that someone else wants answered, mm -hmm. um, but then we do the, the really specific like the internal pelvic floor exam and we actually found mm -hmm. a different issue, um, and that it was uh, extremely painful to perform any part of the exam essentially. Um, yeah. and so that kind of led us down a different, a different pathway. Um, have you happened to see her again? I'm actually seeing her tomorrow. Okay. I'm, I'm really yeah. curious to see if, uh, the, the, I believe it was a topical medication that we gave mm -hmm. that we prescribed for her, um, yeah. to see if that, that helped with any of her symptoms. Um, even though it may not have had anything, I'm using air quotes, anything to do with uh, urinary incontinence, which is the reason that she mm -hmm. came. Um, so maybe something that okay. could help is, uh, I like to think about two different buckets sometimes with uh, a group of diagnoses relating around a specific subject. So for pelvic, re for pelvic rehab, um, my two buckets that I, I wanted to at least go over this time were, what are the most common issues that you see and then are there some don't miss diagnoses? Yeah. So common, common issues would definitely be pain. Um, uh, I really, you know, I, my, my goal, and I think it, you know, it's, it's slowly coming to fruition is really to have a very well-rounded pelvic dysfunction clinic where pain is definitely, I mean, you know, a large component of it, but you know, that, that I would also, you know, have patients who, you know, just have maybe 
some kind of muscle dysfunction after a traumatic event. Um, but I'm starting to see more and more that it's very rare to have isolated muscle dysfunction without any pain in this area of the body, um, which is to me a little bit of a revelation. Um, but you know, these are patients who are typically quite desperate for some help. So definitely, you know, people I'm happy to treat. Um, uh, so yeah, so definitely just quote unquote pelvic pain. And that in itself is, is a puzzle, you know, to sort out etiologies. And it, and it is something I try to explain at length to my patients um, about why I'm doing certain things or ordering certain exams or planning for certain procedures. Um, and that a, a lot of what I do in the initial workup of a patient is a lot of ruling out. So that gets to don't miss diagnoses. Um, a lot of the patients that I see, um, not the majority of them, I would say, but um, a proportion of them are young women um, and typically still of childbearing age. And so um, the things that I would definitely need to rule out would be any kind of um, gynecologic malignancies. Um, and, you know, this obviously also goes for the older, you know, the older women that I see. Um, so I, after, you know, maybe an initial x-ray of a joint, if I'm concerned of a joint, um, or if things seem a bit deeper, you know, I'm, I'm, I try not to be too hesitant to go for a CT scan, um, also so that, you know, I can get a better view of things, but, um, but in my kind of rule out phase, that's kind of definitely, definitely in, in the back of my mind. Um, so something I always want to rule out is any kind of cancer. So I, I'm, what I was hearing was um, like the don't miss diagnoses is, is definitely something like malignant or mm -hmm. possibly something that like is involving the vasculature. Uh, but and then the common common diagnoses that we want to try to mm. look out for. Uh, it sounded like pelvic floor, like myofascial pain. Right. So, so yes. Yeah, so pelvic floor myofascial pain um, is, is there. Um, and that would kind of be like trigger points, um, you know, typically manifested as trigger points in the, in the pelvic floor. Um, other things that are common and definitely not to miss are any kind of peripheral neuropathies. So pudendal neuralgia is a big one, um, definitely kind of debilitating, um, takes away from quality of life in these patients. Um, and, and very, uh, and can typically be, be diagnosed on history and on, um, on history and exam, which is nice. Um, also other peripheral neuralgias. Um, so, you know, in patients with endometriosis who maybe have undergone a couple of resections um, and have some scar tissue, they might have some lower abdominal um, nerve entrapments. Uh, so like ilioinguinal, hepagastric and genitofemoral nerves. And those can be, I mean, history is extremely important in the diagnosis of that, but a peripheral nerve block is also very nicely diagnostic and similar to pudendal neuralgia. Um, um, so there's, so there's kind of the pain side of it. And then I guess in, on the dysfunction side, um, you know, I've seen patients who have, you know, extremely, uh, hypertonic muscles within the pelvic floor, um, with a lot of kind of guarding and it's like a chicken, uh, which came first, the chicken or the egg scenario where, where their muscles tight to begin with, and that has caused them to have pain or were they having pain and guarding causing the tight, the tightened muscles. Um, 
And so, you know, helping them to loosen up those muscles and, and improve their kind of resting state, you know, can be helpful for them versus, you know, the hypotonic and the very loose people who are then having other forms of, you know, daily life changes with incontinence, um, uh, you know, typically diagnosing them and then sending them for, you know, for, for physical therapy is helpful. And uh, before we move on, uh, I think a lot of the, the patients that we've been talking about, or the types of patients we've been talking about have been women, mm-hmm. um, but can pelvic uh, dysfunction or could a pelvic rehabilitation, rehabilitation physician uh, also help men? Absolutely. The first patient I saw in the clinic when on my first day at the clinic was a man. Um, so somebody who was who had been suffering since the 1970s with pelvic pain ever since a motorcycle accident. Um, And he was talking to a friend and his friend was like, Hey, I think you need to see somebody um, who can, who can give you a pudendal nerve block. And that was the first time he had heard that term, you know, the pudendal nerve. And so he Googled it and happily (laughs) I came up and he came, he came to see me. Um, So yes, I'm, you know, everybody has a pelvis. Um, we might not all, you know, all, the male genitalia is obviously different from the woman and the, and the, the areas that the nerves in, innervate are also a little bit different, but we have the same nerves. We all can have them be entrapped. Um, and we all have, you know, muscles down there. So absolutely. Um, men, men definitely also have pelvic pain and pelvic floor dysfunction. They're sometimes kind of given the, um, the diagnosis of kind of chronic prostatitis um, and, and are trying to, you know, live with the symptoms, but, but, you know, it is worth, it is worth a try to see a pelvic floor specialist to, to try to tease things out a bit and, and provide relief. Um, So let's, let's actually move on to a part of um, pelvic rehab that I think might be a little bit more uncomfortable for uh, for physiatrists, and that's mm-hmm. the physical exam, like the, the internal pelvic floor exam specifically. I was hoping that you could kind of expand upon that, um, give us an idea of what it uh, what it is like, what what is special about it, how it differs from um, what people may have experience in their OBGYN rotations, um, maybe back in med school or. Um, from it could be from a little while ago or uh, really recently, uh, depending yeah. on who's listening. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so number one, we don't use any speculums. Um, the 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 purpose of the pelvic floor physical exam in PMNR is to um, assess the muscles um, to see how they're working and also to see just kind of what their baseline tone is like, and then also to try to elicit any of the symptoms that the patient is coming in with. Um, so I, you know, when, when we think about an internal vaginal exam, right? So if we're talking about a female patient, I think everybody's head goes to, everybody's mind goes to cervix, right? That's what we're going to try to visualize, but no, like I, so I, I do not, I do not look internally. I only feel. Um, so typically I have a patient on a flat exam table with their, um, 
with their knees flexed and their feet flat on the, on the table. Um, I don't use stirrups for the exam because my goal is to have the patient as relaxed as possible. Um, I guide them through the whole thing, tell them what I'm going to do and, you know, and, and, and also let them know that they're in control. And the minute they tell me to stop, you know, I'm, I'm done. Um, and I start off by, uh, by examining the external genitalia um, and then with a gloved and lubed index finger, um, I, I, I insert that finger in, in the female exam um, internally into the vagina up to my kind of first, um, the, the, the DIP joint, right? The, the distal interphalangeal joint. So that first finger joint. Um, and around there, I feel for the more superficial um, muscles of the pelvic floor. I feel for any trigger points. Um, I feel for any top bands. Um, and then I kind of insert a bit deeper and then moving in a clockwise fashion, I, I feel the different internal muscles of their pelvic floor. And it's not something that's at all clearly demarcated. Um, I use the idea of kind of hands on a clock to tell me where the levator ani are versus the coccygeus. Um, and so that's kind of up to my second, my proximal interphalangeal joint on my index finger. And so I feel for, similarly for any top bands, any trigger points, um, if I palpate, you know, if this is reproducing any of their pain. Um, and you'd be surprised at how, um, at how specific, you know, patients can be. They obviously haven't examined themselves, but they can tell you when they feel that same pain. Um, um, I can also kind of feel the ischial spines when I'm in there and that's right where the pudendal nerve comes. And so I can do a little bit of a Tenel's test that way. Um, it's easier definitely rectally, but if, but, but if you're able to, you can feel, you can feel the coccyx bone kind of posteriorly when you're in there. And then something that's really important is seeing how the muscles perform a coordinated action. So asking the patient to suck, you know, to, 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 to pull up, to, to kind of like trying to trying to grasp onto my finger um, as like tightly a, as they can, like a Kegel exercise, right? Exactly, like a Kegel exercise, um, and then asking them to completely relax, to completely release, to see, you know, to to see how strong their muscles are initially, but also how able they are to relax, which is, which is which is almost equally as important, you know, um, functionally and then also kind of pain wise. Um, and then I asked them to do that quickly. So I, so I had, I had assessed their kind of slow twitch muscles and then now trying to, trying to see how coordinated they can be with kind of fast twitch with, you know, um, with tighten and release, tighten and release, tighten and release. Um, and then after, um, so that's basically my internal exam. And then, uh, uh, my vaginal exam, and then I'll almost always do a rectal exam as well. Um, and that the main reason is to is to um, feel the coccygeus muscles, and then definitely also the coccyx, um, and then also to see what their anal sphincter tone is like. Um, and that's basically the internal exam. And then yes. in the in sorry in the male patients, I'm in during the internal exam, I'm also feeling the levator ani and the other kind of perineal muscles um, from, from there, from the rectum, which is also very possible in the female patient, but I just am more prepared to do it vaginally. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thanks. Uh, I'm curious yeah. to see how, um, it, it, it's two questions really, but if you can answer probably just one if you want to, but uh, how did you 
uh, learn yourself. Um, and now that you have this clinic, for anyone who might be starting up their own clinics and might have uh, trainees with them, how do you plan on um, helping your trainees learn how to do the, the pelvic floor exam? Yeah, great question. So I was lucky to kind of come after the founders of this field of PM&R. Um, so I didn't have to kind of go to OB clinics and urology or urogyne clinics um, to learn, but I had amazing mentors, you know, in the field of PM&R um, who told me all the resources I needed to, um, I needed to learn from. So like Kelly Scott at UT Southwestern and Jacqueline Bonder um, in, in New York at Cornell. Um, and then also, you know, having the opportunity to, to, to actually be in clinic, you know, um, and, and see, and see what the people in this field, you know, how they assess patients, what their frame of thinking is like, that was, that was huge. Um, so it's not, you know, when you're learning it, you might not actually get to be hands-on if it's not within your institution, um, which was my case. Um, but I, I think something that they inculcated into me was that, you know, I'm trained in muscles and nerves and joints and bones. Um, and that's what this is. It's a different, it's a different area of the body, but the nerves still behave, behave the same way. The muscles still behave the same way. Um, and so taking that knowledge, learning the anatomy inside and out, um, and then applying it, um, you know, I think was a huge confidence boost for me. Um, and so then I guess in terms of when you kind of move from the position of trainee to then, I guess, mentor, um, I think the biggest thing is, is, is number one, teaching, teaching the trainees, the train of thought, um, the, um, the idea of process of elimination, what to rule out, how to do that. Um, and then, uh, and then also working to make the patient comfortable when there's a trainee in the room, which, um, I don't think is a, is an easy task, but I, I do think has a lot to do with the senior physician who's there and kind of how it's presented to the patient. Um, and so I think just, you know, explaining the reasoning and so often my patients will say, um, yes, you know, we need more doctors who do this. I was, you know, suffering for so long. I didn't know this field existed. Yes. Like, you know, let them learn from me, um, which is I think really nice and unique to the field. Wow. That, that's really great. Um, yeah. I'm glad that there, there are patients that, that do feel like that, especially, um, in this, like, it's kind of, a uh, not a unique area, but an area that, um, is usually private to, to everyone. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah absolutely. Um, let's go through some of the common treatments um, and how, mm -hmm. how to source them per se. Uh, I wanted to see what like a physical therapy uh, specialist and, and what a pelvic rehabilitation PT would do in their therapy. Um, and then how you would kind of source those people in the community to be able to actually refer your patients to them? Yeah, okay, huge, like very, like definitely great question and um, kind of the backbone of any pelvic floor dysfunction or pelvic pain practice um, are good community pelvic floor PTs. 
Um, so what they do, um, so they do a very similar exam to what I described in terms of the internal exam. And then they, they're also assessing, um, but the biomechanics of, of that whole part of the body, you know? Um, and then in terms of PT, um, I've seen them do a variety of things. So, um, if we're thinking about kind of levator ani spasms causing pain, um, they might do some internal work, um, uh, to, to loosen up any trigger points or top bands there. Um, if we're talking about uh, like incontinence, something that's interesting about the pelvic floor is that it's really difficult for patients, for people in general, to localize the, the muscles there um, unless they're being actively kind of touched. Um, and so, you know, if you tell somebody, don't push when you pee, like just let it happen naturally, which is what's supposed to happen. A lot of times patients don't realize that they're actually pushing out their pee, you know? And so, um, or, you know, try to relax yourself completely. They won't realize that, sure, they may have relaxed the rest of their body, but their pelvic floor is still clenched up. So a big part of what they do in PT is biofeedback and teaching the patients how to localize that part of their body. Um, which is, you know, extremely important. And then, you know, strengthening if they need strengthening or loosening if they need loosening um, and then working on posture um, and, and kind of the, the joints surrounding the pelvic floor, any, any issues, you know, in the, in the mechanics of the hips, for instance, or of the low back. Um, so it's kind of, it's pretty varied, um, but definitely, definitely integral. Um, so a lot of the prep for, for, for this practice, for my own practice, um, involved getting in touch with the community pelvic floor PTs for the reason that you said, you know, if I want my patients to get better, and I know that a, much of the evidence points to incorporating pelvic floor PT um, in my treatment plan, then I need to have, you know, good PTs to send them to. Um, and so there are, you know, a few ways to... Um, to assess kind of quality of the PT session. Um, and one of the main ways, and that's kind of easiest for patients to do is um, just telling them that they should not be left alone kind of on a table or on a machine for more than X amount of time during their session. And typically I give them the blanket term of one third of the time of their session. Um, that to me is, is, still, is still a substantial amount of time, um, but, you know, it's better than, it's better than a half of their session. <laughs> um, but, but honestly, the pelvic floor PTs that I've interacted with um, are phenomenal and they really, you know, have the patient's best interest in mind. They're one-on-one -on -one with them when they're, you know, most of them have one hour with the patient one-on-one -on -one without other patients that they're, that they're caring for at the same time, um, you know, in a private room. Um, and that, you know, that that's huge and extremely beneficial for the patients. And um, what kind of medications are kind of unique in, in this field when we compare it to other, you know, other parts of physiatry, like other medications that we're familiar with? We, we, we give many of the same medications that we use in PM&R. We just give it very locally as a suppository or as a cream. Um, so um, um, I've given 
you know, I've given lidocaine cream, which is something we use or, um, or, uh, like a Voltaren gel typically can also be used in, in that area. Um, in terms of, of other things. So for muscle, for loosening of muscles, I've given Valium suppositories. Um, I know it's not something that we prescribe typically in PMNR, but, um, in order to, to move to more interventional treatments for something like an anal sphincter spasm, we have to first have the patient um, uh, fail topical treatment. So I've done nifedipine topical um, for these patients to try to lower the tone of their sphincters. Um, yeah, uh, gabapentin can be compounded into a cream um, for nerve pain. So like for pudendal neuralgia, applying it right to the perineum can sometimes help. Yeah, yeah, I think I think anytime I hear you talking about the different topicals or the different suppositories that are able to be used, like I'm I'm always thinking about how those are good PO medications or good IV medications, but um, like yeah. the idea of like compounding these medications and using them locally uh, has always been unique to me. So every time I hear you talk about it, I'm like, oh, wow, <laughs> that's that's something in my toolbox. That uh, that's something that yeah. should be in my toolbox. I. And I, I need to fill up that toolbox to be able to use those things more often. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, and also, then what, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say finding a compounding fam, ph pharmacy that um, that you trust or that you've seen good results from is, is also important just because when you get something compounded, it's not necessarily standardized. Great. And yeah. the, what, are, what are the most common interventions that you do? Um, a pudendal nerve block, um, trigger point injections to the pelvic floor, and um, peripheral, uh, those, those lower abdominal nerves, um, the ilio, inguinal, iliohypogastric, and genitofemoral nerve blocks would, I would say those are my three most common procedures. Um, is, like, is botulinum toxin another option that we have? to another yes. tool that we have to use? Yes, definitely. Um, so that typic, so Botox can certainly be used for pain, um, but it, uh, it kind of works best with insurance approval if the patient has failed other, um, other, other treatments. So for instance, a trigger point injection before going to Botox for, for that myofascial pain. But but, but botulinum toxin can certainly have great effects on pain. Um, and then I have done botulinum toxin to the external anal sphincter for intractable constipation, which has had very good results. Great. Thanks for covering uh, the different common treatments that we can like uh, expect to see in pelvic rehab. Basically sure. what I'm hearing so far is that the principles of pelvic rehabilitation are really similar to what we already know in physiatry. Like these are the same structures that we're, they're dealing with their, their bones, their muscles, their nerves, and they're just in a different part of the body. Um, mm -hmm. So it's something that we should all technically be familiar with, but uh, might take a little bit more specialized training or specialized interest to have that passion, um, right. but it shouldn't be completely unfamiliar to us. Um, yeah. the, one of the things that I think is unique about this, it, and I, I, I want to get your opinion about this is there are all these different pathologies 
that happen around the pelvis. And there are also a lot of specialties that might deal with the pelvic anatomy and who might even know it better than us, uh, say like pelvic reconstruction surgery specialists, urogynecologists or urologists. Um, how, how do you think in, in your practice, um, how do you think that a physiatrist would uh, give a different viewpoint or what extra thing do um, physiatrists have to add? Yeah, um, great question. So there are a few things we can add, but the one thing I guess I want to focus on is the idea of, of prehab, which is a new idea as far as I know. But um, uh, I mean, it's not my idea, <laughs> but, um, but, but it's not something that, that I've seen implemented very often, but the idea of optimizing a patient prior to their surgery. Um, so we think about... Um, when we think about a patient who, or a person who wants to, let's say, let's say have a baby or get pregnant, um, something that's advised to them is to kind of get their body ready, get themselves as healthy as possible in as best shape as possible. Um, so that, so that they can be more successful, you know, in carrying their baby with less, with less potential complications. Um, and it's, and taking that principle and then adding it to, to a surgery um, makes sense, right? Because anytime we're doing surgery, it is a traumatic event. Um, and there are definitely going to be um, consequences of it, you know, in terms of recovery. Um, but if we can try to um, prevent prevent problems down the line by optimizing the patient beforehand, there, you know, th there is credence to that. So for instance, um, a patient who's going for, um, um, is, is, who's going for a surgery due to bladder prolapse, um, where they're going to lift their bladder up. Um, if they, you know, let, let's say that their muscles have been, you know, so, um, so loose for so long, um, that, that, uh, they may continue to have issues in that realm in terms of incontinence after the surgery and then be dissatisfied. But if they, if they get assessed before surgery or found to have these muscle coordination problems, um, get PT with the proper strengthening protocol, um, and then get their surgery, it's possible that, or it's, it's likely that they would have less dissatisfaction in terms of continued incontinence, um, afterwards. And so that, that, that idea of, of kind of optimizing them to just have the best outcome. That's something uh, I never really thought about or heard about before. You know, we, we kind of talk about rehabilitation and like cardiac and pulmonary uh, mm -hmm. rehabilitation or cancer rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. So this is, um, I can, I can see you taking over the world uh, oh. and, <laughs> and uh, helping, helping, <laughs> Uh, women who are about to get pregnant or anyone who might be undergoing a pelvic surgery in the future. Oh, I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> it's not my idea. I can't copyright it. <laughs> so I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, I think we've discussed a lot of very great things. Um, I wanted to thank you uh, very sincerely for taking the time to, uh, to talk to me about pelvic rehabilitation. Um, my pleasure. Is there anything that you, any final words or anything that you would like to plug? Mm. Um, 
Um, honestly, I think I hit all of my topic points. <laughs> um, um, just, I, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful that people are kind of starting to think about this um, um, as really a subfield of PM&R, which I think we 100% belong here. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can see more and more of us and have this, have this subspecialty grow. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Sultan. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.